Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Dual Torah reading, uh, Tazria and Metzora, covering Leviticus 20, uh, 12 through 15. So Leviticus 12 through 15, and also picked up the passages in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5 and also in chapter 7. Then we also looked at some passages in Luke chapter 7 and uh, Matthew 23 and 24. So, uh, yes, Larry, you had a comment or a question to start out well, with? Well, maybe it's premature, but I'm wondering, we know why. We're told what is, uh, causes leprosy in, in men or people, which is in a rebellion against God. But what's the deal with the leprosy in the, in the leather and the house and the stones and all that kind of stuff? Do we know anything about that? Same cause. That's why, that's why we read all these passages. Uh, hopefully that was a big hint, that same cause. So. Do it. The leather thing didn't do it. The right? house didn't do it. Well, remember what the Apostle Peter said about the house of God is built with what? Living stones. Hint. Yes. So. That's right. Clean out the outside of the cup, but filthy on the inside. So, just some reminders here about about this. You know, we can take a look at this and wonder, well, what was all these particular instructions thrown in here together? Um, and these instructions are about purifying for uh, childbirth and packaged together with uh, cleansing people who are basically uh, walking corpses, uh, considered to society as being. And also, what this all has to do with these <laughs> incredible, um, we had just finished on our last reading last week with these blessing of the priesthood. So one of the things that these are all going together was this is referring to things that are happening in the tabernacle. So what have we been looking at since the beginning of Vaikra or Leviticus? What have we been looking at with the tabernacle? What is its purpose for? Is it, is it the, uh, basically the celestial casino? You just go in, you place your bets, and pull the handle on the, the, the slot machine, and out come the blessings? So do you just do the right incantation, and thus you, know, you are going to force the deity to obey whatever you want it to do? A place to come close to God. And actually, what we were seeing from the very beginning with the instructions, it's a place where God comes close to us. And thus, you see that it is a foreshadowing of and a lesson in what then became revealed through the prophet as Emmanuel, or the uh, with us God, or God with us. Yes, Alex, uh, you have a uh, comment or a question. Important back to what comes out of man is the problem with the whole discharge thing, okay? 
I tell it's you, that, not what that, goes in; it's what's coming out. Of that's uh, that's a pretty graphic way to uh, describe of what what the what the situation is with uh, some some things that happen uh, regularly to both men and women, and also to things that don't happen regularly to men and women. So again, a lesson in that. But you can see that. <laughs> You have also this following after what we read in Leviticus chapter 10, which was a massive failing of two priests that were the closest to Aharon, closest to the high priest. Massive failing in their coming close to God. They wanted to come close to God. You might remember that they were mentioned specifically in that lunch with God that the 70 elders of Israel had. They were mentioned specifically. They went up there. They went up there. They participated. They had this unbelievable close encounter with the creator of heaven and earth. But in the end, they weren't allowed to go up the mountain further with Aharon, uh, with Moshe, actually. So, yet, now they're back in the situation where they are here ministering with the presence right there. So, you would think it'd just be natural, hey, to just go up, go close to the presence. You couldn't go up the mountain, but there the presence is right close by your, your workplace. But they did not heed the fact of uh, remembering you know, who they were in relation to the divine. So, uh, Anne, you had a comment or a question before we go further on this. I think, I think I'm ahead of you, but, um, you know, in all the offerings that they mentioned in these passages, there was one about the, the, um, the turtle doves and how yes. there was a red string and then there was uh, some other things, hyssop and some other spices the cedar and, wood yeah right and yet one one of those turtle doves was that set free and so i wanted to see what the because that you know how that chiastic type of thing that daniel used to teach us yeah. that's the one verse that's strange in all of the rest of it it's not strange but i mean yeah. it sticks out well it's it's the same it's the same one of all of them and ask the question right up what does that remind you of and that will give you a big hint in what this has to do with anything well the atonement day of atonement right and thus you are also seeing what is going on here with the (laughs) the being set free but also you're basically being come back and it even mentions it specifically in the passage where it makes atonement for you so you are seeing a situation where people are (laughs) having a huge separation away from the people of God. Because when you descend down and it gets to that point where you are declared, you are totally, (laughs) you're totally, Tame, you are totally unfit to approach the presence of God, then you have a very, very difficult road back. But it is one that when you are declared clean, you have that road back. Now, this in in particular, as we go into this further, we'll see 
the shades of a lot of what is going on and why you have a large concentration of of incidences of metzora or as it calls it people who have a tzara or the um leprosy what it's called this skin condition this infection why they seem to be clustered around certain things certain time periods we have miriam is very um prominently has this condition around with a contention against moshe against the really contention that that she and her brother aharon the high priest had against moshe and and you could say in a sense it was similar to um similar to the falling out that the family of korah had with moshe basically who put you in charge i guess you could boil that down to that whole thing and miriam and aharon had to be shown yes this is it's true as to who was actually put here as the the leader and who is the actual uh servant now that's a lesson that came down also to the time of the mashiach because when moshe said there is a record in deuteronomy that there would be another prophet coming like after me and you listen to him because he is going to be leading further well same thing happened in yeshua's generation as well who put you in charge it's a subtext you see in the gospels again and again and again who put you in charge but you could see that the there were some of the people who recognized that he was the one who spoke with authority in other words they recognized who put him in charge and you even see it recorded there in the in the book of acts where gamaliel one of the key leaders of the sanhedrin at the time a major sage recognizes like hey we got to see where this is going because uh god may have put him in charge and his followers may be following the lead of who heaven put in charge here so yes larry go ahead we better not find ourselves fighting against God. <laughs> yes. The rest of the world has missed that. But yeah. I was going to say about the, <clears throat> with Miriam and Aaron, they were, Moses was their little brother. Yeah. So yes. that's another little wrinkle. Yes. It kind of reminds me of the thing in the, in the Gospels where, where it talks about, you know, hey, uh, aren't your brothers with us? You know, didn't we grow up in our hometown? Yeah, and you're claiming to be who? Yeah, and you're claiming to be what? And yeah, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Yeah, that's true. Well, a very similar thing happened. And again, it's like, well, who put you in charge? So one of the things that we also see is uh, some of these, these questions that come out of this is like, well, why are things like related to um, the miracle of childbirth? Why is that something that there needs to be a cleansing for? And also, it's this elaborate ritual for the cleansing of the leper. And, you know, how is this rebirth of the, of the leper very similar to the resurrection of Israel out of the house of bondage? These are things, and 
you might have just noticed we just went through the passage of the uh, institution or the consecration of the priesthood. So, did you notice the cleansing of the leper? The... It, it, should, it should have been a, a good key about the earlobe and the thumb and the toe because that was something repeated again and again. Now, it was something very interesting about you know, the blood and then the oil on top of it. So it's very interesting that the leper, in a sense, with their atonement, what is being covered, where they're being brought back into the family, they are, in a sense, almost like being consecrated. Well, they are being consecrated. But it's very interesting that they have gone from death to life, brought back into the family. They were dead before. They were considered dead, cut off from the family of God. But they are now brought in, brought close. So, thus we see some of the other big lessons that, yes, here we go around again. These lessons that we've seen before, we're seeing them again. We're back to the garden again, the tree of life versus the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Which way are we going to go toward? And as we kind of look further into what this condition of, of the, what's called leprosy, but this infection, what is really getting at? Because as he observed earlier, Larry did, that this is not something that's just with people, but clothing and buildings, your house, also infects your house too. So you're also seeing that with this is coming new life, that who is coming out of this condition of this infection, as it is, is now being coming into a realm of new life. Just similarly, like we see that those who are redeemed from the world then come into the New Jerusalem. And we see that talked about there in the Gospels. We read that section in Matthew 24. And then you see that that running water, and literally it's, you know, Maim Chaim, or living water, that living water, that is the realm of God that is carrying away these things. And then you see that also prophetically talking about it, especially in Ezekiel, the last several chapters of Ezekiel talk about this with the rivers of living water flowing out from the house of God into the world and making all the brackish water into sweet water or drinkable water. But the lesson of that is we who may be Metzora, or in that, with that infection of what uh, we have, as we'll go into this later, we who may be brackish, meaning undrinkable, are transformed into being drinkable, mean, meaning useful. Because, yeah, there are things you can do with brackish water, but um, not a lot of things you can do with brackish water. There are some things, but... With fresh water, you can do a whole lot of things with that. So how useful, how um, life-promoting are we versus with brackish water, if, if your anatomy is not set up for brackish water, um, yeah, what's going to happen to you if you just start drinking a whole lot of it? Yeah, you die. Yeah. So 
that which could be life-promoting ends up being death-promoting. Another lesson here. So as we go into this even further, we just uh, have a little bit of a recap of some of the the terminology that we've gone over here in Vayikra about the korban. The korban is what's translated as offering. Again, that comes from karav or that thing which approaches, to approach. So this whole goal of whether you are, you know, you are clean or tahor, or if you are tameh or unclean, it's really about approaching. Are you fit to approach? Are you tahor, clean to approach? Or are you tameh, unfit to approach? It's all about approaching. Because why? Because the house of God is put in the midst of the people to do what? Put up a nice barrier and go, ha, 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 you guys are toast. No, it's about drawing the world into the presence of God to have that way in. But to emphasize that the way that things are going outside of where the dwelling place of God, that can't continue. If you want to be where God is, God has to transform you. We've been seeing that from the very, very beginning of the book of Vayikra that this has to happen, this transformation. So thus, with the, uh, the tzara'at, this person is called le- what's called leprosy or this infection, and then the person with it, the ha-metzara'at, the person with it, the leper, we might say, or the infected one, this infection has to be dealt with, has to be recognized and dealt with. And that's one of the interesting things that you get with this particular picture is you may have caught one little particular little incident, especially as Larry was wondering about with the house. What did it say about the furniture again? You know, when you think about, but when do you take it out? Before it is diagnosed. So you're thinking just in a practical sense, Okay, you think in a practical sense, if there is an infection, wouldn't it be infected if the furniture was in there before the diagnosis? But what is this all talking about, whether it's a person, whether it's a, a, an article of clothing, or whether it's a house? Quarantine. Diagnosis and quarantine. You know, the, the principles that you see in this particular passage, as disgusting as some of them are, just to talk about as we're eating, and it is something that was actually revolutionary in many areas and time periods. And, you know, like when you think about during like the Black Plague, uh, those who um, held to the word of God as being something instructive for life actually said, hey, you know, maybe if people are sick, we should kind of keep them separate for a while until they get better. Yeah, you got to keep them separated. And it's very interesting also that this diagnosis is not just for a physical condition, but it's something spiritual condition, we call behavioral condition, which comes out of your spiritual condition. But this is something that we're seeing happening a lot today. Because we 
came out of a pandemic. And what is a pandemic all about? It's spreading everywhere. You got to stop it. You got to quarantine it, put it off. Well, people came up with some various ideas on how to do it. But one of the key things is that those people who are infected, you want to keep away from other people for a time period until the thing passes. Now, yes, uh, Daniel, uh, go ahead, please. Um, I just have a question. Is there yes. a rule against getting someone on sick on purpose? Like, if you like were mad at someone, could you just like, hey, I have this disease. Hey, what if I give it on them and then they be unclean too? Oh, so, um, yeah, malicious infection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes, that, that's, that's what you might, might say is um, what you would call an evil intent. You know, if you're, if you're looking out for the destruction of someone else, <laughs> that is uh, whether you're talking about spreading a, some sort of bug to them or whether you're just looking to take them down in one way or the other. Um, that looking out for someone's good is a part of what is really the realm of the people of God. Because you, you think of the, the corollary, um, you know, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Or as the one corollary came to that as don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you, which has a lot of negatives into it. But the element of that is, is that why do you do that? Because heaven has done that for you. Heaven is looking out for the best things for you. So thus we, because heaven, we are the recipients of the good things from heaven, and heaven is looking out for the best things in us. Thus, we look out for the best things in other people. You know, when it talks about that all things work out for good, to those who love and serve him, you know, that's not just some sort of Pollyanna uh, positivity gospel thing. That is the element of what is actually taking you through from death to life. Because you can kindness someone all the way into the, into the kingdom of death. And you can, quote, love on them and never address what their issues are that are just dragging them down, 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 which is a part of, really, what is at the heart of this issue with the issue of uh, Tzarat. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry, first Rose and then uh, Lorilla over here. Uh, yes, Rose. To uh, answer Daniel's uh, question with a scripture, and it's in Leviticus 11.44, it says, For I am the Lord your God, you, you uh, shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you devile, defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. For I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, and you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So uh, as far as a creeping thing, it could be, uh, it could be an evil person. Uh, back when AIDS was very uh, infectious, there were a lot of people who knew they had AIDS and continued to have uh, partners. Uh, they didn't care, so that's an evil heart. So we're to take on we're, we're to take on the example of Jesus Christ, Yeshua, our Savior. We're not to follow the example of other human beings, but we're to follow the example of our Savior and King. All right. 
So yes, that's that's a good good lesson. Uh, yes, uh, Lorella, then uh, Alex. I was going to say you um, just mentioned a little bit of uh, you could use kindness and send them to death. Yes, and I learned a different definition. You can be nice and send them to death. Being nice is saying, well, gee, I just don't want you to feel uncomfortable, so I'm not going to bother to tell yes. you what the truth is because I'm being nice. Yes. Being kind is always telling the truth mm. because if we are kind as Yeshua was kind, we will tell the truth. We will do it in a nice way, perhaps, but we will always tell the truth. Being nice is, I, I say, it's like not bothering to tell people that you've got spinach in your teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Being kind is telling them you've got spinach in your teeth before they stand up to give a speech. True. The, the reason why I bring that up is that kindness is the, is the buzzword these days. And it is, in modern parlance, taken to be synonymous with nice. And even though it isn't, I bring that up because most people in younger generations understand kindness to be niceness. And anything that will reveal, hey, you know, you're headed down the wrong road as being not kind. So uh, when people in younger generations are talking kindness today, they mean niceness, what you're referring to. But really, heaven is being kind to us by giving us a diagnosis, hey, you got, a, you got an issue here. Uh, yes, and a remedy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to, I had the same, you know, when those of us who were around long enough ago, Danielle, remember, that was patient zero. Well, as far as they could trace, it was a French-Canadian, uh, very play-around gay guy, steward, and he was, he was the guy who really sent it through the park with AIDS. And that was, I forget his name, but... He said he was doing it. Well, someone gave it to me. Why should I? Why shouldn't I? You know, live my life. Right. So, yeah, and that struck me, and that's 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah there, there, have been, there have been a number of uh, malicious outbreaks. So let's, let's move on here with this. We've got a lot of ways to go with this topic. So, one of the things that we are taking a look at here with the passing from death to life is we've gone this far in the book of, of Vayikra and are seeing again and again the discussion of Tameh and Tahor, the unfit to approach, the fit to approach. So the question is, is that, well, what is actually happening inside of us? And there's an example here from Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Or as you see that Yeshua put it a different way, you know, there's in a parable, he's talking about the one who says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, yeah. The problem is that if one of the things that when we are in an area of trial, we see a number of examples that James chapter 1 is a great kind of encapsulation of that, not only a prayer for trial, but also a 
prayer for wisdom in the trial and a prayer for perseverance in the trial and also a prayer for maturity through the trial. So that's in a, in a particular thing because otherwise, why would we consider it all joy when you face all kinds of trials? Because wouldn't we just want to just live comfortably, just live comfortable with no sort of things to worry about ever? Yes. <laughs> What's that like? <laughs> yes. But that is, that is a, a thing when, you know, the, the big buzzword, buzzword in today's world is resiliency and, and worrying about resiliency. It came to be the big buzzword here locally during and after the wildfires that swept through this place repeatedly over several years. So the thing was resiliency because you get a big shock. Your house burns down or your friend's house is burned down or everybody, you, your whole neighborhood burns down. And well, what you've now had this thing of security taken away from you and your life has become slightly or maybe even much a bigger impact to your convenience in life. You may have lost completely everything, all of your family history, all of your family memories. You, know, you may have lost all sort of connections that you have to any of your resources. They may just be gone. So that kind of shock was very, very difficult for people in this area. The incidence of just general like mental health uh, requests and inquiries just shot up astronomically with this. So big talk about resiliency. But in, we see in the family of God that resiliency is a huge, huge deal because that resiliency, who we and what we put our trust in is what allows us, and you see examples of it in Scripture of where for example, the apostles, when they are in prison, they can be singing even while they're locked into stocks. So the stocks have taken various forms by various cultures over time, but it's never a pleasant experience to be on lockdown like that. So to, in that situation, to instead of just falling into a spiral down of despair, to rather say, okay, why is this going on here? And also, not only just why is this going on, but what can I grow through this? How can I grow through this? So that is a really key aspect to the idea of what you call biblical resiliency. Not just, not just and when we talk about shalom, it's not just freedom from adversity. It is contentment, it's well-being, no matter what the situation is. So when we pray for the Prince of Peace, what is the Prince of Peace coming with? A sword. And it's talking about, you see in Revelation, a sword comes out of his mouth. The two-edged sword. So the word of God with a two-edged sword in his mouth. So that by a, uh, you could say, a superficial definition of peace, doesn't sound peaceful at all. Yet, it is shalom, 
because it is bringing the whole world to a sense of completeness, to a sense of well-being, to a sense of kindness from heaven, but not niceness. Because the world just thinks, hey, you know, uh, if you just don't be um, angry, then you're not actually getting at the situation. But my parents, I'm sure your parents, had situations where they got angry just to emphasize, don't go further, stop, you know, run out in the street, put your hand on the stove, all the various situations like that to stop you from heading out into destruction. Uh, Rose, yes. I, oh, I'm sorry. It was uh, Christine. Yeah. Please yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking, um, pardon the you know, anecdotal story, but when parents, when we as elders can give a children not just memory scriptures, right, but also like songs so that when they're pressed later on in life, that that very childhood song, they'll, they'll begin to sing out loud and it will bring them comfort. Not only the scriptures, but just songs, uh, heritage songs. And this is what, you know, uh, the Judas, uh, uh, Jewism, excuse me, Judaism says also teaches songs and prayers of healing and uh, strength. And when times get tough, you know, who's your... Uh, sword and shield, and so it's a it's a dying um, art, right? Turn off all uh, car songs, right? There's the little car songs that are fun, but then there's also car songs that are hymnal or biblically based. Like I will call upon the Lord, right? Who is worthy yeah. to be praised? So I, shall I be saved from my enemies? And mm -hmm. it, it's through song I have found that um, the Holy Spirit will bring in courage and resilience during those times. So I just yeah, thought in, I'd speak indeed. to that. Yeah. And it's by no uh, coincidence that much of Scripture is uh, poetry, or at least to some degree has a rhythm to it. It's not by any, <laughs> any coincidence at all. Yes, the Torah self. And uh, Lorella has a comment or a question over here. Yes. When Christine brought that up, this has happened to me with three different ministers. Mm. They say, does anybody know how many commandments there are? So do you want just like the basics? <laughs> do you want like the whole thing? And they, that's not the answer they're looking for. And then they say, who can do the Ten Commandments? Who knows all Ten Commandments? I stick my hand up in the air because I know them. And uh, especially one time, I had a bunch of kids that had been in my Sunday school class, and I taught the Ten Commandments in song. I said, okay, all of you up here, up here. And 40-year-old people could still sing the Ten They couldn't think of them, but once you put that music in their head, they could recite those. So I always try to, whenever I'm uh, you know, discipling kids, always try to do scripture by song because it is so important, and the Bible says to do that. It is a good way for, for people to hide the word in their heart. Yes, indeed. Well, one of the things that we're looking at here is, well, what is this element that is called uh, the tsa'arat, or the 
the um, leprosy or this infection. And we have some examples of it in some particular passages, and a couple of those are what we read here today. And one of the things that we've uh, talked about this in years past is that this particular condition is uh, talked about a lot in Scripture as being, it's referred to in Hebrew as uh, Lashon Hara or with the evil tongue or the bad tongue. So basically speaking bad here in various situations and toward people. Now, one of the, the particular things that we have about this uh, particular condition, and we see some examples of this in Scripture. We mentioned here about Numbers 12 with Miriam Aaron and Second Chronicles uh, 26 with, with King Uzziah is another example of where he got uh, this what's called leprosy or the mark of leprosy. But also in Second Kings 5 and then also we see it again in Second Kings 7. So with this particular lesson that we have, one of the things, and we'll take a look at this as a good lesson for us here going forward, is we saw two particular passages, 2 Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 7. And the context of those particular passages is hugely important about what the condition was. Why, was, why were you having this, this situation with this sarat showing up in like two particular key um, situations within this particular passage. Now, this particular section of Second Kings is referring to the northern kingdom, or we call it the kingdom of Israel, the, the, the northern kingdom. So this is after the divided kingdom. So you got the northern kingdom with its capital in Samaria, and then you got the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Yehuda, with its capital in Yerushalayim. And that split there happened with the, one of the sons of David with uh, Jeroboam and his split. Now, one of the things that we've talked about at the time period is that Jeroboam had a, you could say, a, a good reason to split. Because Shlomo, Solomon, was going off the rails with his oppression of the people. And you could say, well, he had an excuse. But the, what the one thing, and it's a, it's a thing that happens again and again throughout history, is that someone has a legitimate reason to say, hey, this situation cannot continue. But then they take that to blow the door open and create, throw out everything related to what it is they're, they're looking to move through and to reform. And Yeroboam did exactly that. Because he's like, okay, well, they're too oppressive down there in the south, so we're going to split off. But the problem was is that they did all kinds of things different. I mean, they, they, they came up with, hey, we don't... One high place, we'll do two high places. You know, instead of instead of just the going up to Yerushalayim, we'll have two. You know, we'll we'll not just have one golden calf. We'll have two of them, one in the north, one in the south. Um, you have your own list of appointed times. There, list in Leviticus twenty-three. We'll come up with our other ones, <laughs> even at a different time period from them. 
to kind of also uh, divert people away from traveling down to to Yerushalayim. Because, I mean, think of this. You've split off into another country. Then if people are going to be following the words of God, where are they going to go? They're going to leave your country and then go down to your enemy, the place that you split off from to break away from. So they had a completely different set of appointed times up there. So when you think of the context of it, 2 Kings 1, you have one of these first kings. This is the <laughs> aftermath of, uh, you know, of Ahab or uh, Ahab. And uh, they also the, the, the queen there of Jezebel, the two of them brought in a, you could say, a great pantheon of the deities of the surrounding nations into the worship of God. So under that particular reign, you had the confrontation with Eliyahu and all of the prophets of Baal and also the devotees of Asherah, all, all reaching ahead there on Mount Carmel. And you had that question again, well, who's in charge? And there was a visual display, a very, very forceful display from heaven down to show, okay, who's in charge? You've got this whole gaggle of uh, evangelists, you could say, over on one side and one guy over on the other side. And they're putting on great the show over there and then where does the fire actually come down on? So this is like after now that Ahab is dead, and then his sons, one of which came out, and they talk about sons, you could say, is almost a spiritual descendant as well as a physical line. But in particular is that Ahaziah, the king of Israel, he goes to inquire of Baal Zebub. Beelzebub. I love it. So, Lord of the Flies, Lord of Dung, whichever way you want to translate that. Um, he's inqu inquiring as to, it, it, it says that he, was, he fell through a trellis. Now, another way you could say is he fell through a window, which seems kind of interesting because someone else fell out of a window. <laughs> uh, the uh, Queen Jezebel also fell out of a window under the different situations, but he's inquiring as to whether his fall was going to kill him or not. So he goes to inquire of Baal Tzavah, so one of the Baal, one of those lords, those masters of the various areas. You hear about them in scripture, Baal Tzavah, and Baal Tzavah is another one. And in particular, you see that this confrontation of this king, Ahaziah, is sending this delegation to Baal-Zabab to find out, well, what is his fate going to be? So <laughs> heaven sends its own messenger out to confront this delegation that's coming to go inquire the foreign god. Basically, what are you doing? And then you see the king demands an audience. He subpoenas the, uh, the prophet to come 
And at this point, he pro- the prophet Eliyahu, it's like they're demanding him to come down. And three different inquiries go up with these. You know, they're coming with 50, like a, I'm trying to remember how large that would be. It's about a, what, a platoon? Yeah, it's about a platoon size coming after to go arrest somebody to bring him in. And uh, they demand him to come in. And whoop, fire comes down, almost like Carmel again, almost like. You would think that a descendant of, of the Ahab uh, would remember about the fire coming down from heaven and, uh, and decide not to go that way. Well, it happens three times. The fourth guy comes on his knees and says, hey, and recognizes who's actually in charge and requests him to, to come. Yes, uh, Deborah. Now in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, it talks about God giving permission for the Antichrist to, to call fire down from heaven. So the next fire we see, we need to be aware of what is written, that it's not going to be of God. So it says that, you know, Satan, God is going to allow him to deceive the nations and that fire will come down from heaven. So when you said fire from heaven, it made me think about that, mm. if I'm not mistaken. You can okay. correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, there's you know also the uh, two witnesses in there. And, uh, yes. So also, if you take a look at chapter two, then you have this, um, passing of, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Tammy has a, has a comment or a question yeah. over here. Please I was go actually ahead. listening to this. I was actually listening to this podcast early this week and they were talking about the whole, the whole confrontation with Jezebel in particular. And that, uh, when she comes along, they mentioned one thing is that her name Actually, you know how a lot of these prophets, like Elijah or whatever, their names have the name of God in their name. Yeah. Like whether it's Eliyahu or Elisha or whoever. Well, Jezebel's name also has the name of her God in her name. Yes. So that kind of thing of naming your children after God in some fashion or your God or whatever, it goes both ways. But the more interesting thing was that this person was pointing out that Jezebel was so intolerant of Hashem that even this very watered-down, uh, you know, heretical worship of God that they did have in the northern kingdom that Jeroboam has set up, she couldn't even tolerate that. You know, she was wanting to suppress even the, even the most watered-down, insipid, weak worship of God that they did have that Jeroboam had set up. She couldn't even tolerate that. She wanted to totally wipe his name out. Yes. From the land. Yeah. And which is very interesting. Then you see another descendant, like down in Second Kings chapter three, where it talks about Jehoram, who uh, did a reform. But the thing is, okay, he got rid of this pillar of uh, a particular Baal there in the temple of Baal that his predecessor father had set up earlier. But the thing is, is that it mentions that he still retained quote the the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel sin. So this same kind of separatist mindset to divide away. Yes, he did one reform, you know, like moved out this pillar. So you get this sense of wanting, or at least seeing some of what the problem is, diagnosing the sickness, diagnosing the infection of the northern kingdom, but not dealing with it not quarantining it he didn't quarantine it out he you could say moved it off to the side period 
Now, one of the things that you see also in Second Kings chapter 4 is the issue with the oil. Uh, now, one thing to note is that you've had this passing of the mantle or the, the majesty of Eliyahu has gone to Elisha. And so Elisha now is keeping and taking this up again. Now, one of the things you note in this, and you see the issue with the um, extending the oil for the widow and also then for this woman from uh, Shanuam who was uh, barren and all saying, okay, you are going to give birth. So bringing food, bringing sustenance, bringing fertility, very interesting. What was it that Asherah was supposed to do? Uh, fertility? The fertility goddess. Yet, where was the sense of life? This is a, a great example and a broadside, you could say, to all of the Asherah devotees up there. Is that, well, who can really bring fertility here? Yes, only the creator of heaven and earth can really bring that. So thus, when you start getting into uh, coming down to, to Numbers chapter 5, you start saying, okay, well, in this context, then Naaman, a captain, a commander of the oppressing force that's really weighing down upon the, uh, the uh, people, the descendants of Israel, both north and south, there in the land, he is now coming in and saying, hey, I've got this condition. I've got this infection. Now, the king is at least smart enough to know, oh, this is something that uh, really only God can deal with. But what has he been dabbling in? He's been playing the old uh, mix it with all of the, the religions and the deities of the area around. Now it's like he's faced with the reality, this is going to cut it. I know who I should be going to, but I have now distanced myself from <laughs> that particular source of help. So he goes to the one who really does know, the man of God, and he goes to Elisha in this sense. Now we see, as we read there in, in, in 2 Kings chapter 5, that this faith that Naaman was taught, taught to have faith and demonstrated the faith there in the God of Israel. And you see it specifically mentioned in there. Now I know that there is what? There is only one. There's only one God. And it's not the God that uh, commissioned me and sent me out in my army to go conquer the land. And frankly, not even the one that is supposedly in control of the land that I'm in, but rather this guy out there, the man of God, who's not <laughs> kind of on the sort of the out list with the people who are supposedly in charge of the land. But uh, yes, the very first time I'd ever read that, I don't have it right in front of me, so where he said, please forgive him if he goes back and bows before another God. Mm, mm. I'd never heard that before. Yes. And so, so was so, he basically asking? 
what you see right there, uh, kind, of, kind of short way to put this is Acts chapter 15 is what he's basically praying for. Because those four things that are mentioned up there at the front is very similar to what Elisha is praying for for Naaman when he goes back. Because he's like, this guy is detoxing from the realm of the not gods or the false gods. So have mercy on him as he's detoxing. He's had his eyes opened as to where the real power is in heaven. But have mercy on him as he's kind of feeling his way around because, you know, sadly, even going to a lot of the people of the, of the land, even in the northern kingdom of Israel, he's going to be hard for him to find real guidance on it. Now, something also interesting to note here is <laughs> that you see this interaction that goes on these, these chapters here of what they call it, the school of the prophets or the house of the prophets. It's very interesting that there is this, this picture. We, we just think, you know, someone just gets down and gets slapped in the face about uh, with, the, with the spirit of God. This is something where you, you have to be trained in what it is, trained in discernment of it. Because when these things come to you, what, what do you make of them? Because a lot of people get visions. A lot of people get things that they hear. Or that, but how do you weigh them? How do you discern them? How do you then move forward with them? Yeah, we've got lots of benefit because we've got not only the Torah, but all the writings. We've got the prophets. We've got the gospel. We've got all the apostolic writings. And we've got lots and lots of context to take these things that are coming at us from all kinds of different directions. And as Paul says, you know, take every thought captive and bring it into subjection to the law of Messiah. So you've got some sort of a structure and a rule or a standard to compare it against but when in the realm where a not a lot had been written uh that is <laughs> that then takes a lot more particular skill which is also something where you see this spiritual training show up as to the instructions that the apostle paul gives about when you bring people in to various leaderships of a congregation yeah just when a guy comes right in the door, just don't start making him, you know, the head of this or head of that. You've got to really help him and mature him and guide him in this and that and watch, see what is going on here to, to uh, not only help him, but help the congregation as well. So that, that's a, a really important message here with this. Now, one of the, the things that, that comes through with this is in chapter 7 of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 7, you see that this, the prophet Elisha uh, is saying, hey, food is coming. Now, you probably, something should be rattling around in your head when you started hearing this. What did that comparisons of money and food sound like to you? You heard that in the book of Revelation, that there's time periods where people will want to be, well, not only buy or sell, but you know, things will be selling for this price and selling for that price. But it's a, it's a reflection of saying whether you are in plenty or whether you're in famine here. And 
what you see at the beginning and what you see at the end of this particular passage in 2 Kings chapter 7 is talking about going from famine to plenty of this. And it's interesting, the same guy shows up at the beginning part of this chapter and at the end part of the chapter. The beginning part, he's like, yeah, is this really going to happen? And the last part, he gets trampled by the people who are doing what? Going to get the bounty that the Lord had left open to a people that were starving to death under siege. So it's like, well, do you really... Do you really trust that the Lord will provide even in the most dire situation or not? So in what you see in this particular situation is you see a, a nation that almost itself has this condition. They are almost all a Metzorah. They are almost all, and they need a diagnosis. Well, they threw out the priesthood. They didn't want the priesthood down in the south. Well, who do they have? The prophets. They've got Elisha at the head of the prophets. They had Eliyahu at the head of the prophets. To diagnose for them, since they threw out and they got their own priesthood up there that was leading them off into a different deity, some no god up there, well, he was diagnosing for them what the sickness was and what the way back was. And you can see in that situation of the Yehoram, um, you need to heed the word to say, you don't just uh, partially quarantine a particular thing. You need to have a total quarantine. We call that the exodus. You've got to leave Egypt behind. If you're going to go out of the house of bondage, don't go back. Don't drag parts of the house of bondage with you. Don't drag their deities with you. Don't drag their practices with you. And you see that in this particular situation, that when you are making a break, it has to be a clean break of leaving it behind. Because uh, when, we, when we see this situation that we have today, um, there's more and more, it's a, a gathering crescendo now of people starting to realize of what they, of coming to the realization of what they call social contagion. Social contagion is, is basically the idea of you have a, a easily infectable population, to put this in, in epidemiological terms, an easily infectable population of, or to put it in biblical terms, people who don't know their right hand from their left, as it's described in Scripture. Then you bring in a contagion and don't have anyone to diagnose that there is any problem, and you don't quarantine. So what do you expect to happen? And it's exactly what we've seen actually happen. So one of the things that we we really need to pray for is that not only in ourselves do we open our eyes up for those things within us that drive the Lashon Hara, but also that the eyes of others are opened to see those things. And we pray for safety, and we pray for protection, and <laughs> work for protection 
for those youngest who are still in the realm of not knowing their right hand from their left. So to help them, to guide them, to lead them up, when he's talking about train up a child so that when they're old, they won't depart from it, so that they have something to compare it to. They're trained at least with that. They can, they can be like the northern kingdom and just throw it out the window, but at least they have it. Not like the generations that, <laughs> that was in the southern kingdom where they just found the book of the law in the back of the temple. They had it, but it was stuffed in storage. And you could tell the people hadn't heard it in a long time because when it was read, what did the people do? They were weeping, weeping. They were so enthusiastic to be bringing these things back in that they were weeping for it. So, and the end with this, when we think about this, the, all these particular lessons, that when you have the Mashiach, as we talked about last week, and again, reminding that one of the prophecies from Isaiah 53, 4, is that surely our sicknesses he himself bore and our pains he carried. Which is why, you know, even in some particular um, lines of the sages and such, they had called the Mashiach the leper Mashiach because of passages like this, that he would take on himself these sicknesses. So that's when we read in the Gospels that he is touching lepers. He is touching those who have this tsarat, taking those upon himself and saying, hey, you are clean. Now go to the temple, show yourselves to the priests, to the, to the official inspectors as a witness to them. As a witness to them of not only, hey, these conditions exist, but wow, there is someone out there speaking with authority from heaven who just took that away. Took that away. And a part of what the whole process, and we, we mentioned that at the outset, the ceremony of the healing of the Metzarat is what? Two birds, one dies, the one who lives is baptized in the blood of the one that died over living water and set free out in an open field to fly away. A picture of Messiah, picture of Yom Kippur, which is a picture of Messiah. So, and us, yes. So, thus you can see that this, this picture that we have in of the tabernacle, of these things, that sections of scripture that ugh, we want to kind of cover our eyes because they're gross. Actually, the human condition is kind of gross in the, in the things that we are, get ourselves involved with, find ourselves involved with, or get thrown into. These things are gross. But the point is, is that the creator of heaven and earth wants to live in the midst of the grossness. Yes. But he doesn't want to leave us in the grossness. He wants to deliver us out of our house of bondage, to take us out of these places, to bear our sicknesses, those things that corrupt our tongues, to make us lash out at other people 
either overtly or covertly or passive aggressively to other people. So may that be what the Lord does within us. Amen. So close things out here. The fact that we have all this information and knowledge, <clears throat> well, you know, so knowledge has increased, but what also has increased, wickedness is covering the earth like grass. Yes. So just knowledge doesn't make it. Nope. That's right. Knowledge puffs up. Yes. That's, that's why, you know, we, we talked about this before around Passover time, uh, why you see during, and, and uh, John, that when he's talking about where he's having his last discourse with his closest students, he's talking about, I must go so the comforter can come. So, you know, remember that Menachem is also, or the comforter is another word for Messiah, but Messiah said, Menachem is another word for the spirit. They have to work together. The word has to come in. The word has to come in to, uh, to convict and to deliver. But deliver to what? Deliver to a life that's transformed. We call that a new life. To be born again into a new life. What? Romans 7. Yes, we must be born again. And then into what? Romans 8. So that the Spirit of God helps us with those instructions, helps us in our infirmities, helps us with those conditions, helps us like with Naaman when you are around your old life again. Just like, you know, you want to go the right way, but you have those things that are dragging you back. So help us in those weaknesses to take us to the place where the Lord is leading us. Yeah. Uh, yes, Sean. Yeah, um, we are so blessed. Yeah, the knowledge has increased that we have this access to Torah, to understanding, to teachers that, like Jeff and many others that have the revelation that can help us. I, I just want to encourage, though, that knowledge doesn't puff us up in any way where we don't go down to people who have no idea, hasn't heard any of this, and their hearts need to be affected by this word and this, this knowledge that has increased. Go, go ahead, Tammy. Yeah, I just saw this quote. It says, uh, Jesus sat with sinners. He didn't sin with sinners. Mm, I mean, uh, yes, Alex. Yeah, I, I, I think this company here is just so good about that because I got radar for people who are a little bit nicer, a little cleaner, a little, you know, whatever. You've seen them in church, right? Don't go there. Don't go there. We're not there. Thank God. Because just like Sean said, there are people who need us to talk, to reach out to them. That's reaching down. You don't want to look down at people because they got radar big time. Yep. Amen. Indeed. Uh, yes, Rose and then Daniel. I was just thinking of uh, your teaching today about, uh, I, I, don't, I try not to compare myself to others, but I was just thinking that the man who went down in the water had greater faith than I do today because I have the word of God at my disposal. I have so many tools in my toolbox, and it, I have no excuse not to have faith. I have absolutely no excuse not to have faith. So I think that man had greater faith because he did not have the tools that are available for us today. I mean, it should be a walk in the park for us today. Yeah, and 
Yeah, how many of the books of Scripture do we have? You know, the book of Job and the book of Yonah is another one. These people that have connections to the people of God, yet maybe not have the full revelation of, of things, but still hold on and cling to those things they have. Yes, Daniel. Um, I have a little analogy to make with what Larry said. Um, the Bible says for us to be a light to the world. And if liquid people are like grass, like it says in like Psalms 1, then that technically means like when grass has too much light on it, it dies. So if there's enough light in the world, then the evil will have to die. Yeah, that's kind of the, like from uh, John chapter 3, the Messiah says something very similar is that, you know, the, uh, the evil likes to shrink away into the darkness because it doesn't want itself to be exposed. And that is a part of the light of the world is to, to shine into the dark corners of our lives into the world. Amen. I can only share partly from my experience, but when I, you know, went to church for years and then came into this teaching, I had a lot to unlearn as well as learn. And we, I, I call what I call baby Christians, you know, we cannot put the expectation on other people that a mature Christian has. And we, you know, we can give them a helping hand and, and do what we can, but not to put unrealistic expectations on anybody. Amen, indeed. Well, thank you. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.